Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. You guys awake? All right. If you're new to the church, my name is Dave, and uh, it's my privilege to serve here as the lead pastor and the primary preacher. And, uh, and so I want to bring you the Word of God. If you're just joining us, we're finishing up a very short three-week series on the topic of stewardship. Um, stewardship is not about how to serve drinks on an airliner, right? Everybody knows that. It's about acknowledging that God owns everything, and whatever we perceive to be ours is really something God has deposited into our lives in order to do something in us and through us. In other words, it's acknowledging that what we have as ours is ultimately God's, and so therefore, we bear a responsibility in how we use the various things which God has given us. Now, that's a pretty simple concept to understand. It's a much, much harder thing to actually put into practice, right? I mean, you know, for example, that two weeks ago I preached about how we use our talents, our various non-material assets, our memories, our experiences, our talents and skills and spiritual gifts. And we want to use those things to produce a life that brings beauty into the world and brings glory to God. And I wonder if in the two weeks since, there's been a lot of movement in your life in that regard. Last week, I preached about how God has given us the gift of time and how that time here on earth is not forever. It's very limited. I showed you the jar with the BBs that represent the days I probably have remaining in my life. And that, that jar has continued to haunt me all week because I keep telling people about it from outside our church. And then that sits on my office. But the funny thing is, despite the fact that that illustration has followed me since last Sunday, I have found pockets in this week where I've completely wasted my life. And so what I realize is it's easy to understand these things. It's quite a bit more challenging to put them into practice. Well, today, we have one that I think is pretty easy to understand, but very difficult to really follow through on. And that is the stewarding of our treasures. The stewarding of our treasure. What, what happened to the... Uh, there we go. How we ended up in the... There we go. And... It's the idea that we are called to steward our material resources. But I want to be cautious because I think for some people, this is such a familiar message. And for the cynics out there, this is the time where the church comes with hat in hand, making you feel guilty about not giving more money. That is not at all my intention this morning. In fact, I'm not going to talk very much about how we spend our money at all. I'm not going to give you much practical guidance or state the obvious things. And certainly what I don't want to see happen as a result of this is we all start looking suspiciously at each other, thinking, hmm, well, you're supposed to be a Christian. How do you afford that car? How do you get that house? The point is not to look at each other and judge one another. It is to seriously contemplate whether the lordship of Jesus Christ has really taken root in our own lives. I want to ask you as you hear this message, not to think about what others are doing, but to think about where your life stands with respect to your relationship to money and other material resources. I'm going to draw this message this morning from Matthew 6, 19 to 24, and here's what it says. This is the word of God. 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is dark, darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus concludes, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I'd be willing to bet, if I were a betting man, that every one of us at some point in our lives have played the classic game, what would you do if you won $100 million in the lottery? Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands who plays the lottery, but it's a common fantasy for people to engage in, whether in private fantasy or late night around a circle of friends at Denny's, and you can spend hours cataloging in great detail and to great personal secret satisfaction, what would I do if I had $100 million? And most Christians will begin that conversation with the, the opening disclaimer, well, of course, obviously, I'd give at least $10 million to the church or to the Lord's work. And then so that helps us engage in this sort of financial pornography with clear consciences thereafter. I think we do it because we wonder what, an infusion of that kind of cash would do to us. Here's, here's the thing, though. I think that kind of money would change the scale of our spending, but I don't think it would do very much to change the direction of our spending. See, I'm convinced that what we do with very little is a great window to project what we would do with a great deal. I think there's this myth that somehow abundant blessing will produce abundant character in us. That somehow I'm the way I am because I don't have enough, but if I had too much, I would suddenly find the nobler me. I would become a different person because now I have different assets. But I don't believe that's really true. I believe that the, the resources we are given, especially when they suddenly multiply, in the same way that our resources, when they suddenly disappear, Reveal the character and the heart that was always underneath. I think Jesus captures that principle well. You know, later on when he says, at the end of his famous story on the parable of the talents, it's one of the most famous stories Jesus told about how we are meant to steward the various things he's given us. And at the end of that story, he tells the one faithful servant, the master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. I think what Jesus is saying is that our, our relationship with money is one of the greatest indicators of where our hearts really are. You can make all kinds of verbal claims about what you really feel about money, but in the end, your life will not lie. Your heart will not lie. It will be demonstrated in how you relate to material assets. And so Jesus goes on in this passage to teach, and he draws contrast between two opposing things, and he does this three times. In the first contrast, he talks about two treasures. Two treasures. That's in verses 
19 to 21. The thing is, most sermons on the stewardship of money focus on how we allocate our money. And so it it talks a lot about, well, what percentage are you giving? Are you giving before taxes? And we talk like that. I don't think I need to give a lot of instruction about how we ought to spend money. I really think in the end, if you really are interested in that, you should take a Crown Financial Bible study. You should ask your small group leader or your pastors for some practical guidance. If what's on your heart is, I've got this money, it's burning a hole in my pocket. I want to use it for God, but I'm not sure what that means or how to do it. I would love to buy you lunch and dream with you about that. I have yet to have that conversation with anybody. I mean, but I'm waiting. Some, sooner or later, somebody's going to come with that burning question. How do I do this? I don't think that's the real battle. The critical battle in our lives is not about how we spend our money, but it's about where our hearts belong. And I think Jesus understood this because he didn't primarily focus on money, but he focused on the treasure that we hold deepest in our hearts. That word treasure is important because it means more than money. It's that thing which we most value. In fact, I would even go as far as to say that what you ultimately treasure is what, in fact, your whole life is designed to worship and to chase until the buzzer rings. Listen to what he says in verses 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures here on earth. But then he does say later, do store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So these are the two treasures Jesus is contrasting. It's not so much about how you spend your money, but it's about where your heart dwells over the duration of your human life. And as we learned last week, you don't have that long to get this right. You don't have forever to figure out where your heart will live and park itself. And every single day, your life is a visible, audible argument for where your heart dwells. Every one of us treasures something ultimately. Now, I know that the easy and quick verbal claim is, yes, I treasure God above all things. I I sincerely hope that is true of us. But my guess when I look around our country and our world and in my own life is that that's not always true. It may be true for moments and flashes, but I'm not convinced it's consistently true of our lives, even for those of us in the church. What we ultimately treasure is that thing which we will spend all our other resources to chase. To pursue. It's what will get its priority in every contest. When you have to choose, and usually it's a difficult choice, between one thing and another, what you ultimately treasure is the thing that consistently wins that contest every time. I mean, you know that your resources, your time are not infinite. You can't physically be in two places at one time. So it's like the same thing. You go to the Cineplex and you're like, I got to watch a movie, but there's three good movies. You can't watch all three simultaneously. You can only be in the one. So you have to make choices all the time. And what you ultimately treasure reveals what it is that you will choose every time there's a contest. It's also what defines your frustrations. What do you stay up late at night frustrated about? You're frustrated that you can't get more of this, that you don't have more to invest in this. What you ultimately treasure is what you're greedy for, what you're selfish for, what you want everything in in the world to be aimed at. And so if you are really committed to a certain thing, you want everything of yours and everything of everyone else's to be aimed at that same thing. And I mean greedy in the positive sense in one way, is that you're greedy or selfish for everything to be aimed in this one direction. 
and you're frustrated that there isn't more to gather up and give to this thing. That is what you ultimately treasure. And if you, it's very important that we become clear and sober-minded about what it is we really treasure. You can make a lot of claims, but it's important, critically important, that you be very honest and sincere in understanding what it is that has really got your heart. I think for a lot of people, the thing that they ultimately treasure is rooted to this earthly life. And that's because there are open loops, holes in our hearts, this unfinished business that we're trying for the rest of our lives to resolve. You know, let me give you some examples. Um, I'm sure that all of us can think of specific people, maybe our own stories that will reflect this. But I've seen a number of things pop up over the course of my years in ministry that, that reflect the kinds of unfinished business people spend their whole lives trying to finish. For some people, they've lived all their lives feeling insecure about who they are, inadequate. And so the life quest, the thing that they ultimately treasure is one day I will prove to everyone that I am worth something. I will prove to everyone that I'm not such a loser, that I'm not a failure. For other people, it is that they long to win the approval, to hear a word of blessing and affirmation from somebody who has withheld it all their lives. If you're Asian, it's probably your dad, <laughs> okay? Statistically a high possibility that the one person who's never given you the full affirmation you long for is your father. And so everything you do, even into your 60s, is just hoping once your dad will go, dang, I am proud of you, man. You are like a decent human being. You're better than I am. And we're longing to hear that from this important person who has never really given us the gift of their heart. For others, it is simply to be loved. Nobody has ever really cared for them. And that unfinished business causes them to spend everything to attract the attention of a lover. For others, it's to finally outshine the person in whose shadow you have lived all your life. And the truth is, for some people... You have a ghost following you everywhere you go. There's this person who's not even aware that their very existence troubles you because it's always been the umbrella casting shade over your life. You're like, everywhere I go, dang it, I'm second place to this fool. One of these days, the world will see that I'm not second, I am first. Maybe it's a desire to be respected a desire to be envied because you grew up all your life envying everybody else and you just promise yourself one day others will envy me. I don't know what it is, but I got to imagine that for a lot of us in this room, the quest of our whole lives will be defined by trying to finish this unfinished business here on earth. And I think that's what Jesus means when he refers to earthly treasures. The things we most ultimately treasure are goals and ambitions that are rooted to this world because we're not finished with this story here. There are things down here we need to complete, and that's what explains how we use our money. That's what explains the treasures we pursue on the earth. And that's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is so critically important. Because it's only the acceptance and the blessing of our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ that will close that hole in your heart and help you to move on. 
It's not that I don't understand why we're trying to finish this business. Everything I just listed is totally understandable, isn't it? If you grew up in someone else's shadow, if you grew up suppressed and oppressed by the authority of others, if you're always second fiddle, if you never heard words of affirmation, isn't it understandable why you would want to spend the rest of your life chasing that elusive thing? Why you would spend every other resource available to you to get that thing which your heart ultimately really wants. So you can show the world, I did it. It's not that we don't understand why. It's that you are hopelessly going to chase it forever and never finish that business. Because so much of that unfinished business lies in the past. And no matter what you do in the future and in the present, you cannot erase what stands as part of your story. There is only one person who can close that loop in your life, who can actually accept you so that you can accept yourself and move on. And that is in part what Jesus meant when he said, I've come to bring you eternal life. We always think of the word eternal life in terms of temporal sense, right? Like it's going to last forever. I'm going to die and I'm just going to keep on living forever. Yes, that's a part of eternal life. But here's also what I believe Jesus meant is that he's come to give us a life that is lived in view of eternity so that finally we can be set free, break loose the bonds of this small earthly life and start thinking maybe my real business, the quest of my whole life here on earth, doesn't have to be about finishing unfinished business here. But maybe, just maybe, I'll be able to be free enough to think about the kingdom beyond this life to trust Jesus to make me whole instead of using every hour, every second, every dollar, every talent to to prove to the world I am whole. To sit on top of the heap, to come in first, just so the world will know my name. And only Jesus, I believe, has the power to heal that wound and to finish that business so you can actually move on. And if that hasn't happened in your life, everything else I'll say will go in one ear and out the other this morning. Because until you are healed of that, you can't afford to think about anything else. Isn't that true? What you're chasing, what you ultimately value, is your religion, your true religion. Maybe it's vengeance. Maybe it's justification. Maybe it's all these different things. But if Jesus has not healed and freed you, Nothing else really matters. You'll never be free. You can win every game you play and still feel as trapped as when you started. And the sad thing is, if you do live for things you treasure here in this small and earthly life, you may gain a great deal of things along the way, but every last one of them will be left behind when you go. And what you'll find at the end of the journey is everything you work so hard for is something you will have to walk away from. And as you're walking away, you'll realize, I never really finished the business after all. It reminds me of a kid who spends the whole day at the beach not looking at the ocean, not swimming. You see, there's always a kid in every family like this. They're just obsessed with the sandcastle. And they sit in one spot and they get water and sand. They don't see the beauty, the vastness. They're just building this darn sandcastle all day, and at the end, it's an awesome sandcastle. But then mom and dad say, <clears throat> little Johnny, it's time to go home. And little Johnny doesn't want to go home because he looks at the sandcastle and goes, dude, I spent my whole day building that thing. 
can I take it with me? Don't be ridiculous. I don't want 80 pounds of sand in our station wagon. And so little Johnny, having spent the whole day building the sandcastle, has no choice but to realize the entire day was spent building something that he would walk away from. And it would eventually give way to being reclaimed by the tide that comes in or by the next teenager who walks by and just kicks it. You know, that's how teenagers are. Look around. Just like that, right? That, that kid won't come back to the beach next month and find that sandcastle still there. And that's kind of the story of so many lives. The whole of our lives are spent building this thing because we believe that if we could just complete it, I would finally feel good about being alive. And you, you, you sacrifice everything to get it because it's what you most treasure. And yet you look back and say, wow, everything I gathered and did in the pursuit of this treasure, I now have to leave behind and walk away from. What Jesus says is that where your treasure is, there you'll also find your heart. In other words, your relationship to earthly things is the most reliable window to where your heart dwells. In law enforcement, there is a common maxim or an axiom that says, follow the money, because the money doesn't lie. You want to know where your heart is? Don't listen to your own mouth. Look at your pocketbook. Look at the way you organize your calendar and your budget, and you'll begin to get a glimpse at where your heart really dwells day to day. Let me move on before I park too long on this first point. The next contrast Jesus draws is between two eyes. Two eyes. Have you ever played a game where you had to be blindfolded? Anybody? Just raise your hand. And you were guided maybe by somebody else giving directions. I had to do that in the Aero Leadership Program, walking down a very steep mountain trail. We actually went off the trail and through the thick of the, the brush and the, the fallen logs, and it was very hazardous. If you couldn't rely on the person guiding you, you were going to get physically hurt. Some people in my group did get fairly seriously hurt because the person guiding them really sucked at guiding them. Okay. What I learned, though, when I wore that blindfold was just how frustrating and debilitating it is when you don't have your eyes. I wear glasses, and every day, at least 10 times in my house, you'll hear the words, Honey, do you know where my glasses are? And if you wear glasses, if you have corrective vision and you don't have your glasses, it is so frustrating. You're like, what? What's everyone laughing at? What's on TV? And you can't see anything until you do this. See, the eyes are such a valuable part of how we relate to our world. And what Jesus says is this. The eye is the lamp of the body. What he means by that is it's the conduit by which the light in the exterior world comes into the interior world. Without your eyes working right, you cannot see properly what actually exists. In other words, without your eyes working right, reality is not available to you. Now, here's the thing. A blind person does not live in a dark world. They live in a world bursting with colors and shapes and patterns. What's the, the problem is not that the world is dark, but that they cannot access the light that surrounds them every day. I can't imagine what it would be like to be blind and sit in the middle of a park and feel the heat of the sun and everyone around me says, oh my gosh, what a view. 
What a beautiful day. And I stand in the middle of that reality, but I cannot access it. Because my eye is broken, for as much truth as surrounds me, I can't connect to it because my eye is broken. I'm blind and cut off from a beautiful world, which to me is lost forever because I can't see it. And what Jesus says, he uses a choice of words very cleverly. He says, if the eye is healthy, that translates a Greek word which can also be translated clear or single-minded or generous. He's saying, if your eye has the right view of this worldly stuff, if you're set free from the slavery to greed, then your whole body will be filled with light. But then he says, if your eye is bad, that translates a Greek word that means bad, but it could also mean greedy, stingy, selfish. So what Jesus is saying is this. Based on the way that you relate to material resources, you will get a good indication of whether your eyes are working right or whether they're not. Whether you live in the light of reality, of truth, or whether you are living as a blind person stumbling about. Remember the illustration that for a blind person, Everything is visible and all around them. They just can't see it. It doesn't make the existence of that world any less real. You know, we watch a little child. If they're scared, they want to hide from you. They close their eyes because the reason is if I can't see it, it doesn't exist. That's how a lot of people feel about the kingdom of God. I don't know what they're all so worked up about. I go to that same church. All right, the guy tells a couple funny stories. I don't fall asleep every week, but what's the big deal? Why is everyone so agitated, so worked up, so excited? Why? Is, oh, Lord. And you're so disconnected from that, right? You, you look at it and it doesn't quite compute. Either you think everyone's faking it to get something, or maybe there really is something which surrounds us and is very real, but for some reason you are unable to see it even though it's right in front of you. I'm going to say to you, that that second scenario is the more likely. That you are surrounded by truth, but because something has blinded your eye, you are not able to connect to what others have been able to connect to. We're not doing this every week because it's just fun all the time. We're doing this because we've attached to something that we can't unsee, we cannot unknow. It is very real. That's why we gather week after week to follow and worship a God who is real. And our relationship with money will be a good barometer of whether our eyes are working or, in fact, we are actually blind. To to illustrate this, let me contrast two men who I don't know personally, but through the historical record seem to demonstrate two very divergent relationships with money. The first person I want to talk about is this guy. 100 points if you know who this is. Shout it out, anyone. Not even. This is the Sultan of Brunei. He is the wealthiest monarch in the world. He has a personal fortune of $22 billion because the government's money is his personal money. He cashes in on his nation's oil and he basically owns a private country. That's, that's basically 
the Sultan of Brunei and the Sultanate of Brunei is his personal kingdom. He is legendary, famous for his excess. He owns palaces larger than most hotels and no one ever walks into them because he seems somehow to be addicted to the process of acquiring things, of possessing things, not actually using them, but having them. And most legendary, perhaps, is his collection of cars. Car people, let me see your hands. I'm, I'm a car guy, so this was a little bit challenging for me. I was vacillating between disdain and envy the whole time I was researching. Okay, This crazy dude has a car collection of 7,000 vehicles valued at $5 billion. That's, that includes at least 300 Ferraris. When he buys a Ferrari, a particular model from a particular year, he buys every color they make for that model. Because you can't decide. So you see in his lot, and he stores at least a, a quarter of this collection in a compound of nine two-story massive garage buildings, basically showrooms. A, an, a Western, I believe a British um, appraiser, recently went because they, the, the sultan realized, I don't know if this is the best decision. So he, had, he wanted to unload some of his inventory. So this guy went to appraise the collection and to inspect it. And what he found was that 90% of these cars had never, ever been started since they were purchased. They sat there with no records, no insurance. They just parked there like trophies, and some of them wouldn't even turn over. They were just dead. Some of them were in such poor shape because of years of neglect. 90% had not even been driven. Think about that. These are cars that other serious collectors would travel the world and cut their right arm to own. Cars that they don't just sell to anyone. You have to be first in line in a special series of prerequisites just to be able to buy the car. He cleared out that inventory for pennies on the dollar for what he spent because, as Jesus said before, the treasures of this earth give way to, wrath, to, to rust and to moths. And that's literally what happened to this man's collection. He's clearly not a car enthusiast. He is a car ownership enthusiast. He doesn't even drive them. What a pity. I, I would like to just get one of those and just borrow it for a week. Wouldn't you? I mean, look at that, that room. Anyway, it shows me that somewhere along the way, his relationship to money has produced a kind of blindness which the rest of us are so able to see the folly of owning things you never use, never touch, that you just leave sitting in a building, don't even look at, and then have to liquidate for a fraction of their worth. The foolishness of that, the futility of that, is lost on him. He owns fleets of jets, palaces beyond counting. But he uses very little of what he owns. And the blindness is there. In fact, if you look at his $14 million gold-plated Rolls-Royce limo, you wonder if he's literally going blind. What is that? That's not the ugliest vehicle that has ever hit the road. It's like a, a rolling monument to poor taste. Good Lord. <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> His life and his conduct stands as an illustration of what it looks like to have this kind of blindness to what is so obvious. He doesn't even have available to him the answer to the question, why would anyone live this way? 
The only answer he can give is because I can. Because I still got $22 billion in the bank. It's the only reason why. Now, don't be too offended. I don't know him personally. I'm not hating on the man himself. I'm just looking at a documented decision and wondering what that might reveal about the person who would spend $5 billion on cars he never enjoys. What a crime. In stark contrast is another man. He lived from 1703 to 1791. Anybody guess who this is? This severe-looking man. You don't want him as your school teacher or your pastor. He looks like he just yell at you all the time. This is John Wesley. Very godly man. One of the most sought-after preachers in his lifetime in England. In fact, it was argued that he's the guy who founded the Methodism, the Methodist church tradition. And it's argued that he was probably the most famous and sought-after preacher in his entire generation. There was a waiting list to get him to come and speak at your church or at your event that was a mile long. And he lived by this famous maxim, earn as much as you can, save as much as you can, so that you can give as much as you can. In the 40th year of his life, he wrote in his, his journal and he, he wrote and he, he wrote in letters to several, several of his close friends these words, If I leave behind me ten pounds, you, all, you and all mankind bear witness against me that I lived and died a robber. In his most prosperous year, I don't know how this happens to a preacher, although these days it's actually starting to happen again. We've got millionaire preachers all over the place. Guys who are earning $25,000 for a one-hour appearance at a conference. It's very common these days for celebrity pastors to earn that kind of money just for giving a talk and then getting on a plane and going home. Hasn't happened to me yet. I hope it never does. But in his most prosperous year, John Wesley earned the modern equivalent of $1.4 million in speaking fees for one year of preaching. He welcomed it because part of his maxim was earn as much as you can, right? So he didn't turn it down. He served the Lord. He followed it, and he earned as much as he could. And, but he lived really very modestly. And that same year that he earned $1.4 million, or its equivalent thereof, he set aside 2% for his household expenses, and he gave away 98%. It's estimated that over the course of his earthly life, John Wesley earned an income equivalent to a modern-day sum of $30 million dollars. That's a successful speaker. When he died, however, and they searched his home, what they found that he had left in his name, that he had deeded behind to his family, was a small collection of heirloom silver spoons that had been handed down from family generation to generation. And then he had about 28 pounds sterling. So a little more. He did die a robber, evidently, because he wanted to be left with only 10. Maybe he didn't have time to spend that last 18 on the way home from work. But on the day he died, having earned close to 30 million in his lifetime, he left the earth with 28 pounds. Today, roughly, what would that be? I don't know. But to his name, he had very little money. And I think that's somebody whose relationship to money reflects something. Because he understood that when he leaves, he cannot bring it with him. And so while it was in his hands, 
it was used. When, when Jesus says, don't store up, that word store up is the same word we, that, that we draw the English with the source. It's about gathering and collecting and stacking up, hoarding. Think about a thesaurus and how many, do you ever feel like English is kind of inefficient? For every word, there's like 18 synonyms. Why can't we just use one word? Right? But that's kind of the nature of of the human spirit is greed and the capacity to acquire things is basic to our nature. And we will store up and hoard things. And a treasure stockpiled is a treasure not being used. In fact, a treasure stockpiled is a useless treasure. It is doing no work. It is providing no real good. It is just being stored up. And that's exactly what those whose eyes are working cannot abide. They can't stand the thought that there is this thing full of power and it's not being used. I know I just gave two very extreme examples, the Sultan of Brunei and John Wesley. I don't think we have to get that extreme to press this question. Based on your relationship to material goods, based on your life ambitions and goals, would you say that your eyes appear to be open or closed? Now, I've heard some people despise John Wesley for being unfaithful to his family. They're like, if I was his kid, I would kick his grave. Stupid earn $30 million and leave us some stupid spoons. I hate you, Dad. And some people argue that was unfaithful to his family, but here's his reasoning. Over the course of my life, this Heavenly Father always met my needs. Will he retire when I die, or will he also meet the needs of my children? Will he not be faithful to my children and their children the same way he was to me? Or is it incumbent on me to leave them a vast fortune so that they will never ever have to know what it is to depend on God in heaven for their next, their next meal, for the roof over their heads? I want to challenge the way you relate to money. Does it reflect any view of eternity? Or is it similar to everybody else? who's going to die, and who knows what happens after that. Let me give you one last contrast that Jesus drew. It was between two masters. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. In other words, he doesn't say you will love the one and feel kind of numb towards the other, but you will love one and your feelings will be decidedly negative towards the other. And he doesn't say it's probably going to be like this. He says it is, a, by definition, an impossibility to serve both. Because both of those masters hate each other's guts in a way. They stand for totally different things. They will not share you. Men, do you think it's workable to be married to two women? I can barely handle one. Why would anyone want to be a bigamist? Do you think you could actually be equally devoted to two wives who don't get along? What would that do to your life? What would it do to your life to be married to two women, both of whom can't stand one another, whose agendas for you are totally different? One says to you, go back to work and earn more money. The other says, come home and spend time with your kids. 
Sometimes the same woman says that to us, right? <laughs> Make up your mind. What, what do you want from me? Does that sound familiar? And what Jesus says is, some people protest and say, why can't I love both God and money? Can't we all just get along? Can't we work it out? But here's what he says, if, and he's not talking about just having money or saving money or pursuing. He's saying if you serve as the God, the defining treasure of your life, if you serve God or you serve money, you cannot in any way serve both simultaneously. You will make verbal claims just like the people did in the past. Jesus, quoting the prophet Isaiah, says of the people in his generation, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's possible to say all the right things all the while your heart never really belongs to God. And that's exactly what will happen when we attempt to love two opposing gods. Is that we will really love and serve the one and we will say flattering things to the other. Or if we're really honest about it, we will love and serve the one and be annoyed every time the other one pokes its head into our lives. I see this quite often. For the person who really has treasured material gain, every mention of God, every mention of need for things, every image of a starving baby creates rolling eyeballs. And, oh, here we go, here we go. Can you give a little to this? Can you give a little to that? And there's cynicism, there's jadedness, there's even irritation. They see the commercials on late night TV with a kid with a distended belly and a fly buzzing around. They go, click, change it. I can't look at that. I don't want to be bothered by that. What he's saying is when you love the one, the other will get on your last nerve. Here's, here's another way of looking at it. If you serve one, quite likely you'll make the other one serve you. Here's what I think is quite commonly happening in the church is that people, because their hearts don't really belong to God, are using God as their servant to really fuel their real God, which is material prosperity. That's what the prosperity gospel is entirely built upon. If you honor God, you will be loaded within a year. What Jesus is saying is, these are masters who don't want to share you. They want total devotion. And what most people will do is serve one and make the other one serve them. And so the question I want to ask you this morning is this. How does it work in your life? Is money your master or is it your servant? Are you using money to serve God or are you using God to serve money? Don't be so quick to answer that. I've had to wrestle through that very question in my own life. And I don't believe that pastors get a free pass. I've had to think about it. And I'm still struggling through that question. I want to invite you to struggle through it as well. Because I think it's one of those questions that's very easy to answer quickly. But pay attention to your prayer life to the things you ask God to provide for you, to the things you worry about, the things you stack up for, and it'll begin to show you who or what has your heart. L let me close this out in this way. Is that time right? Okay, well, we close it out nonetheless. 
In January 1956, five young missionaries decided they would bring the gospel for the first time to the Warani Indians in Ecuador. They're often referred to as Alka Indians, but I don't use that term anymore because that was actually pejorative by the neighboring tribe of the Quechua, who the word uh, Alka means primitives. And so it was actually a derogatory term. They were actually out to reach the Warani. This was like that Comcast commercial where they're looking at down from the airplane at the dish heads flying around in a circle. This tribe had never had contact with the outside world. They couldn't even make sense of what an airplane was. They just saw this giant metal bird flying around, lowering baskets to the ground, and it would drop gifts on the sandbar. They would collect them. And so for a number of days, these guys did that, and they made some positive inroads exchanging gifts with this tribe. So they decided maybe on this day now, we're ready to land. And on a sandbar, they met with some of the people from this village. It seemed like things were going well, but all of a sudden, something strange entered the hearts of these villagers, and a small band of warriors approached them and killed all five of these men with spears. That story is documented in the motion picture, End of the Spear. It's a very powerful, well-done motion picture. It's based on true events. And when the news of these murders reached the Western media, most people had the same verdict. What a complete waste of five promising young lives. What were they thinking? Why would they risk it? Why would they go in there? They should have prepped better. And there was so much armchair quarterbacking, so much 2020 hindsight analysis. And people declared this episode a tragic waste of life. But in fact, the truth is their courage and commitment sparked an entire generation of young people to similarly give away their lives, whatever would happen, to serve the Lord and bring the gospel to people who had not heard it. My own younger brother was among those who was very deeply impacted by the life and ministry of Jim Elliott, the leader of that team. And Jim Elliott famously quoted, I think his statement captures so poignantly, so beautifully, the whole teaching of Jesus with respect to the riches of this world. Here's what he said, and I hope you will dwell on this and even memorize it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I've heard that phrase since 1980s, and it still stirs my heart because it rings so true to the teaching of Christ. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And all he's really doing is paraphrasing the words of Jesus. Don't store up for yourselves treasures you'll have to leave behind. But spend this whole earthly life storing up treasures that will wait for you in eternity without decay. You know, I think so many people try so hard to make a mark, to be remembered, to leave their impression in the world, and so many are then summarily forgotten. But there are men like this whose intention was never to be famous, but they have made Christ famous, even through their death. And what so energizes and moves me about their lives is that even as they were losing them, they were showing us the real value of the time we spend here on earth. 
Their lives serve as a visual illustration, a window to something very real that we don't always see every day down here. I read their story. I listen to their testimony. I think maybe that other world is more real than the one I live in every day. I don't want to make you insecure. I don't want to turn us into the kind of church where every time people come over, you're like, oh, I know that's a nice couch, but we got it totally on sale. Um, that, that we got on Craigslist. Somebody gave us that. I don't want us to be those people, right, who are constantly feeling judged or explaining ourselves. And I also don't want us to become the kind of people who judge one another. But really, here's what I'm asking of us. If Jesus' words are true, that our relationship to money is the most reliable indicator of our spiritual condition, then I think I have the right as a speaker for him to challenge each of us to reflect deeply. What does your relationship to money reveal about your heart? What do your fears and ambitions and worries and goals reveal about where your heart dwells? The only person who will be able to answer that question with you truthfully is the Holy Spirit of God as you sit before him and let him examine that part of you. I think once we know where our hearts belong, our money will inevitably go there. I don't have any concern about that. So the primary question is, where is your heart going? Because where it goes, there your treasures also will go. Why don't we pray? You know, if you live in the church for any amount of time, you will hear invitations to give. In fact, every Sunday, a small velvet bucket with two wooden handles comes around, and you're given an invitation to give. And how you understand what's going on at that moment is very important. Because I I really, as I grow older, and I, I think I understand money a little better, what I'm coming to learn is that it's not so much where that money ends up that matters, but it seems more important that it's leaving my hands. I know that some of the money I've given away has been grotesquely wasted. I've seen it documented that some of the money that I worked hard to earn, I gave away generously, was squandered. But even in the midst of another person's sin, I know that the giving of that money produced a good work in me because it seemed important at that moment that I should release my grip on something that wants so badly to have a grip on me. There's nothing in this sermon intended to make you give more to the church. If that is what you heard, I'm going to ask you to listen to the sermon again. What I believe God wants us to do now in response is to reflect on where our hearts are. So why don't I invite us to do just that right now? Every day, billions of dollars change hands to no eternal significance. One man gets rich, another becomes broke. And yet none of it really matters. I think throughout all of this, what God wants most is to win the battle for our hearts. To set us free from small dreams, small fears. To close the wounds that we could spend our whole lives trying to heal ourselves. 
Stop trying to prove something and just receive his acceptance and his declaration of our worth so that we can move on. You may never get what you're chasing, but I believe the invitation of Jesus is he wants to tell you you are loved, accepted, and whole right now. He wants to set you free so you can live. I guess in the end, what we're saying is that he wants to become our ultimate treasure. The thing, the one who we really worship. So why don't we take one last minute and just give him that. If you love Jesus, if you follow him, just spend a minute worshiping him. God, we pray that you will help us grow to treasure you ultimately above all things. Now, we don't want to be those people who saw value in things that we're going to have to leave behind someday. So set us free from the unfinished business we are obsessed with finishing on our own. Set us free from pursuing and worshiping things that will never bring wholeness to us. Come now and through your loving acceptance of us, heal the wounds, plug up the holes that drive us away from you. Help us to be free and then to move on. Finally live for eternal things. And I pray, God, that you would offer us your Holy Spirit's protection so that even as much money is entrusted to our care, it will never have the power to own us or to enslave us, but it will always be our servant. We have no confidence in ourselves, and so we put all our trust in you. Fight that fight for our hearts and win. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.